Welcome back, lords, ladies, and lovelies to Black Girl Tea Party. My name is Yasmin Hill. And I'm Aliyah Dorsey. First things first, let's get right into the brew. Yasmin, what's brewing for you this week? I have a really exciting personal brew to talk about. In October, I submitted my application to the Fulbright U.S. Student Program, and last Friday, I was notified of my semifinalist status for the program that I applied for, um, which is really, really exciting news. Like I said, I've been waiting since October, so I've just been, like, super anxious about it, and I kept, like, replaying scenarios in my head, like, what I was going to do when I found out that I didn't get it, and that's really bad. So once I realized that I did get it, I've just been, like, reflecting a lot more about how I should be confident in my abilities and my competency and all of that. So I was really excited to get this email, and now I'm just still in the waiting phase to see if I'm a finalist. But if, you know, in the event that I uh, am notified uh, of being a finalist, I will be able to study journalism in uh, Germany for 10 months. Uh, working like multiple internships and working on a story that I had pitched uh, for a long time. So I'm really excited about that. Just wanted to sprinkle a little black girl magic on you. Happy Black History Month. (laughs) (laughs) So that's really my brew. Oh my God. I'm so proud of you. Thank you. What a queen, what an icon. (laughs) Um, So for my brew this week, of course, you know, Happy Black History Month um, to all those in the African diaspora. Um, I hope that this month is full of blessings. Um, So my brew is that recently I joined a server on Discord. Um, If y'all don't know what Discord is, it's basically just like um, a place to hold large group chats. Um, Usually a lot of gamers use it uh, because you can like very easily chat people from like all over the world um, on it when you play games. But um. I saw a TikTok of a girl being like, I don't really have a lot of friends who are black and into D&D or Dungeons and Dragons. And so if you want, if you're black and you're a black girl who's in Dungeons and Dragons, like join the server. And so I have always wanted to play Dungeons and Dragons. And so um, I joined the server and there's like a bunch of really, really really cool people in there um the girls are great um and so i'm in a discord server called dnd for black girls um and it's really fun i played my very 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 first campaign last wednesday um we're playing a campaign called curse of strahd where um we're trying to um defeat this villain this um, vampire warlock who like is controlling this village and is like covered it in mist and we're going to defeat him. Um, we just got out of one of our, a really, really long battle in this house. And we were like, last time we left off, we like defeated the monster at the bottom of uh, the basement in this super scary cultist house. And now we're going to move on to the next part of our adventure. Um, and it's really fun because like, I feel like a lot of, um, I think a lot of the black girls in the server were intimidated by D&D because I think they like associated it with like white men who are really into D&D or just like white people in general and didn't think that it was for them but now we're like in this campaign and it's like really fun we get to like make jokes and our DM like the NPCs that she chooses are like all when she like put this picture of them up in roll 20 they're all like usually like uh, people of color and we like make a lot of jokes and it's just like 
it's really good and i'm really happy to be in the server and having a lot of fun um and i'm probably gonna play another one shot um very soon so that's my brew is that i'm really loving playing D D, especially playing D D with black women so <laughs> and with that it's time for tea for Black History Month, yes, me and I will be bringing you profiles on some black history figures that you might not know, and maybe some that you do. We hope to shed light on some important figures in our history, and this week we will be talking about Bayard Rustin. Yasmeen, what do you know about him? Um, and before you tell me what you know about him, um, know that like people who are familiar with his legacy often call him an invisible hero, a lost prophet, and brother outsider. Yeah, so I, before you told me that you wanted to open the series talking about um, uh, Bayard Rustin, I had not heard his name before. I hadn't heard anything about him. So I did like some slight research. And all I really know is that like he was a pretty active civil rights um, activist. He um, was uh, very vocal in like organizing the March on Washington. But other than that, and that wasn't something that I learned until I got to college, which is part of the reason why we're doing this whole series anyway, you know, uplifting the more unsung uh, black leaders in history. And so I think the fact that I didn't know who he was off the top of my head kind of just like proves why we need to be talking about it in the first place. And I didn't know that he was called the uh, an invisible hero, but I think that is like, very true, especially because, like, um, he's kind of being, like, written out of the history because, like, of his sexuality, which I'm sure you're going to get into um, in a minute. Right. Yeah. No, I am. I'm, I'm geeked. I'm geeked about it. Um, I found out about him also, like, literally in college. Like, I, I learned about him um, maybe two or three years ago. Um, and so I've been kind of obsessed <laughs> with him and his legacy ever since then um so let's just like let's get into it we're gonna do some very like basic biographical information about him and then we're going to um really get into who he is as a person and um why he's really important for us to talk about so uh Bayard Taylor Rustin was born in Westchester um in on March 17th 1912 um and so his mother was 16 years old when she gave birth to him and so she was actually raised as his sister for a long time um and then he was raised by his grandparents jennifer and julie and julia rustin um and they, they like functioned as his parents when he was growing up um and this is really important because his grandparents are quakers and so he was raised as a quaker and i don't know what you know about quakerism as um as like a religious concept, but um, it's a belief system that's kind of heavily based in the concepts of equality. And like, that's largely how like Rustin was raised, right? It's based like in concepts of equality and like pacifism. Um, and so Bayard was raised as a pacifist and he was a pacifist through all of his life and all of his activism. Um, so Ma Rustin, who is his grandmother, uh, she was like, she hated injustice, you know? And she taught her kids that like, they should stand up for themselves in like all aspects of their life, but they should do so non-violently, according to um, Bayard's uh, nephew, Louis Johnson. L- Hold on, 
cut this part i'm pronouncing the name wrong uh lewis john um in the documentary about bay Rustin's legacy called brother outsider which um i watched very recently and i'm going to be if i'm paraphrasing a lot of that is probably from this documentary that i watched it's a very good documentary and i would suggest that um you watch it if you haven't watched it we're going to put that link in the show notes um oh also if you are a student and you're watching you're listening to this podcast um documentary is which how i watched it is available for free through your university login through canopy which is basically just like netflix for like academic um movies documentaries um think pieces and things like that so you can watch it for free uh, potentially through your university login with if your university has canopy so um take advantage of that if you possibly can um and so Moving on with him, uh, obviously he grew up in the midst of a segregated world. Um, And so like in his town, um, a football teammate of his talked about how like the KKK proudly marched through his town and like people would stand on the sidewalks and like clap for them. Like that was how like deeply racist the environment that he was growing up in was. And so like he had you know, like, white friends in high school, and then, like, when desegregation happened, like, he was allowed to, like, um, hang out with his friends when they were in school and in academic spaces, but, like, he was not allowed to see them outside of those spaces, you know, and so, like, there's, like, a local football team that he played on, and, you know, all of his other, like, players were also white, and, like, they were friends, but, like, they just, like, outside of these spaces they were just not allowed to hang out and it was really kind of shocking for him and like cemented a lot of his development about how deep racism went into his world um but like these people describe him um as like a very tough kid like he had long since been kind of a firecracker of a human being about social justice but also like deeply intellectual like he was very into poetry he was very into into academics he was very into like a classical education according to John Rogers who was a teammate of his at the time and so it's really beautiful to me because it means that he's like kind of always been the person that we grow to know him as as a historical figure um and so then in 1937 Rustin moved to New York City and he was going to Wilberforce University and he talks about how in the documentary there's like a voice recording of him talking about how the food was so bad at Wilberforce and so he organized a strike to improve the food at his college and you know like it worked but because of that they asked him to leave um and so after that he uh moved around a little bit um and he enrolled in like a city call at city college and he devoted himself to really like singing and performing with the Josh White Quartet and in the music um and also like in the musicals John Henry and Paul Robeson, like, he was very into music. Um, the documentary has, like, songs that he sang in the playing in the background. And he's a beautiful, beautiful voice. I kind of cried hearing it. Um, it's just kind of, like, very surreal to hear people that you admire, like, who have been, like, long dead. Um, like, hear them such, like, a human way. It was just really, it was really beautiful. Um and so yeah so you should so you know we're hopefully gonna get to give you guys a couple of um audio clips of what he sounds like when he sings but he's very beautiful um and so while he was in college he joined the young communist league um and like this was a big deal because when he became like um 
a very powerful like civil rights activist like the fact of him being in a communist league in college was a big deal because america obviously had a lot of um anti-communist um fears at the time and so like the like being a communist um was a radical stance at the time which throughout all of his life all of his stances would be considered to be pretty radical um but however he soon like quit the party because they ordered him to stop protesting racial racial segregation in the u.s armed forces and so he so he left um and at that time he was already on um the radar of j edgar hoover's fbi um like watch list according to pbs.org you know some of the work that he was doing with the young communist league um and a lot of this happened because like fundamentally he's a person who thought that the black community needed to take a radical moves towards black black liberation that exceeded what the democratic party was giving them at the time um in an interview later about his about this point in his life um he was talking about also like his sexuality and how that plays into like his thoughts on activism and his thoughts on like the way that his personal life and activism come together. Um, so he would say to his grandmother, he said, um, I never said to my grandmother, you know, I'm gay, but I told her that I enjoyed being with guys at high school parties. Her reply was, I suppose that's what you need to do. And it was never an encouragement, but it was a recognition. So I never had feelings of guilt. And the reason I brought this quote is because, like, as a man, Bayard Rustin was very dedicated to never being afraid that things are going to be difficult. You know, a lot of his personality centered around, for me, um, doing this research about him, was that he was, like, going into the world as bravely and as most himself as possible. And that includes being a queer person. That included being gay. Like these were, I think we need to understand the weight of him being an openly gay man in like 1940s, 1950s like America. And when like most states had a criminalization laws against gay people and they had those up until 2003. So the entirety of his life, cause he died in like the eighties, like, being himself was a crime and like in more ways than one like at, at some point like when your life is surrounded by activism like being even a black man becomes a crime um and I think this is a, he's a person who's just taken incredible risks throughout his life um and I, and I really wanted to hammer in the fact that he is gay because we'll see in like later parts of his stories that like that will be the thing that will like erase him from history is this one factor about himself and so um yes me and i want to know like so knowing what i've said about him so far um like what are your what are what are your thoughts on him so far and also the thoughts on like who he is as a man so far i mean i feel like he just represents like the resilience that we're talking about like that generational resilience that like gets us steps closer and closer to hopefully liberation, you know? And I like even just like explaining his upbringing and his childhood and his relationship to his grandmother, it's very clear to me that like activism was something that he was always very comfortable with. And I hate to look back now and be like, Oh, I wish I had learned about this person. Right. But that's kind of the point. I, really, I I don't understand why 
we haven't been taught about this. The fact that like it, he had felt the need to organize over something that to some people might seem trivial, like over cafeteria food. Like to me, that really jumped out because to feel so empowered and then like risk your education. I think that just like speaks to his character and really carries over into like all of the larger scale activism that he contributed to, you know, but even like the reaction of his school, right? Like that just mirrors the reaction of like the government or other like um, political powers, you know, when they're faced with this sort of um, uh, black political rage or even just like uh, protest in general. So one, I mean, I think he's a badass period. Um, <laughs> and that might just seem like very simple, but not even that it's hard to articulate, but the fact that it's like he was on J. Edgar Hoover's FBI list, like I'm not even, I'm like not shocked about that at all, right? Because when you're doing Dill It Down, it's like, what is, what are we fighting for? Rights? Question mark. And that makes me somehow like against the government. Um, but yeah, I just think it, like it, his relationship to activism is like very clear throughout his entire life, and I think it's really disappointing that um, he's not identified as being as active in these movements as he was. Right? Like we talk about um, like the same sort of group of people, and it's like this is the face of Black America, and this is what it was like during our struggle, and then you just go between those three people, and I feel like. Rustin just, like, represents an intersection and just more nuance because it's, like, we're not just fighting to, like, drink at the water fountain. It's so much deeper than that. Right, right. Like, Rustin's activism, I think, is focused on, like, being treated like a full person, you know? And, like, and that means in every aspect of being treated like a full person. And his willingness to, like, stand up to any system that he deems as unjust is, like, really really beautiful and like I think quintessential to who he is as a person and so moving on um he was very in 1941 um there was like an original like march on Washington that was planned um but it just like it just was not coming together in the way that it was supposed to have come together you know and so he was like deeply disappointed in that because he was like this is our moment you know um and so uh, he became friends with Reverend uh, A.J. Musty, um, and who was the head of the Fellowship of Reconciliation, or FOR, um, in Chicago, who were, like, you know, fighting for, like, liberation um, across the country, right? And so, like, they became, like, he became, uh, Musty became, like, a great mentor for Rustin at the time, and they, like, you know, had conversations about black liberation and were both kind of in a similar like viewpoint about like what they think the black people should be doing to uh gain more rights in the u.s um and so as a young man he just like traveled around the country speaking out you know he was uh previous before this he was like a lounge singer in bars in harlem um so he could like make money but then you know um kind of the call of activism called for him and so now he's traveling on the country he's speaking out um he was honestly uh so this is where we get into like a lot more of his ideology so like he believed that like harm was going to come to him 
for speaking out. This man was periodically arrested several times over his life. Like, I think collectively he spent maybe about like two years in prison if we calculate up all the times that he had been arrested um, over the course of his life. And but like while knowing harm would come to him, he fundamentally believed that there was never a reason for harm to come to other people. And in his activism, um, because it's largely nonviolent, because he's a pacifist, his main goal is to making sure that like no one dies, no one gets hurt in any of the the work that we're doing. Um, and I think that's like a very that was a very difficult stance to have at the time, especially when like being an activist, an activist um, in the forties and fifties and sixties, like posed a like incredible danger onto those people and onto their bodies. Um, and so around this time is when he met a man named David Platt and they began a relationship. Um, and then two years later, when Rustin would go to prison um, for failing to appear for the draft as a conscientious objector, uh, they would write letters to each other. Um, and Platt would like pretend to be a woman and they would like talk in code so that they could continue their relationship while Rustin was in prison for refusing to fight in World War II. Um, so he was sentenced, and so there's actually some fun facts. <laughs> well, not fun, not really so fun, but you know, interesting facts about his time um, in prison for um, being a conscientious objector. Um, so he was sentenced to three years in prison and he ended up serving 26 months because he was angering authorities with like protests in prison to desegregate um the prisons because at the time like white prisoners and black prisoners were not allowed to be in the same spaces um but also it's like the people he was arrested with got arrested for the same charges for also being like conscientious objectors to the war and refusing to fight in the war because they fundamentally believe that it is like morally and religiously wrong to kill another human being um in an act of war and so um, he was staging protests in prison to, de to, to for desegregation. And also, also, they knew that he was like openly gay. And so they transferred him to a higher security prison, according to PBS, um, which, which obviously means that there are prisoners there who have like much higher sentences than he does for like much worse crimes. Um, and so after he was released, um, he was because he spent like 22 days in a brutal chain gang in North Carolina. Um, and so he published several papers that led to the reform uh, and or, or, that led to a reform of the practice of prison chain gangs. And so it's like this man was arrested, you know, like he's probably in and, you know, like often we don't really treat prisoners very well um, in the U.S. And like often and like this man was being denied a lot of his fundamental rights while in prison. And, you know, and he's still making the world a better place for a lot of other people um, through his work, even in like the worst of circumstances. But, you know, getting arrested and being in prison for this long was not going to say it was not going to stop him from doing things that he needed to get done. Uh, so he stayed doing civil rights work. He helped to initiate the 1947 Freedom Ride to challenge um, racial segregation of the interstate busing, um, according to BlackHistoryMonth.org. And so this was like one of the first Freedom Rides. This was the Freedom Rides before like the ones that we know of with the Montgomery bus boycott were happening. And they were organized by this man. Okay. And so 
the next year in 1947, he went to India to study for seven weeks about the Gaudian philosophy of nonviolence. And then several years later, he traveled to Africa on a trip that was sponsored by the FOR and the American Friends Service Committee, where he worked with, 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 with I'm gonna say, where he worked with West African independence movements. And like, so he was like spending a lot of time also not only doing his own activism, but learning how to do nonviolent, nonviolent activism better, which I think is also just amazing. You know, like I think activism is a it is a circle is is an ecosystem and you have to learn from other people and so he was doing that for a long time um however um what happened was so he was arrested in pasadena california for like homosexuality and it like greatly damaged his reputation so especially like within the pacifist community um, so a lot, so other times that he had been arrested, which was like new to him, he had been arrested for like civil disobedience. He had been arrested for being a communist. He had been arrested for fighting for civil rights, but people saw that him being arrested for being gay was him being arrested for being reckless, you know, and they couldn't like justify back having his back in, the, in this situation, um, because he was caught in a car with like a, like, I think two other white men and um so yeah so he'd been arrested for like sexual perversion which was a thing that we arrested people for at the time um and it just really hurt his place in activism spaces at the time and so he was told that he needed to be less gay really in order for him to have a place in activism and honestly uh years later in like 1953, which we're skipping ahead a little bit in the timeline, just to give you this fact, um, he was like told to step down from his position in the FOR um, because of the rampant homophobia of the time that he was living in. Because at this time, like activism organizations didn't want to be associated with him because they didn't want to devalue the work they were doing because he was gay. Like literally in the documentary, there are people talking about that there is sexual perversion within civil rights movement. There is sexual perversion within um, the FOR, which were organizations trying to do good things. And they just saw him as a press liability. And it's deeply unfortunate because this man has been putting his body on the line and has been like being denied, has been going to prison and has been, you know, like putting his life on the line for these groups and they forsake him because of homophobia um and so that, that brings me to my next question for you guys mean so like what do you think of the rampant homophobia of the 1940s and 50s as far as it concerns rustin and his activism and like do you think that that is happening today in black activism spaces yes full stop you know like what do I think about it? I mean, you've explained it so eloquently. Like, it's just structural and internalized homophobia, like, working at the same time. And it's working in a way, like, to the detriment of, in this case, Rustin and probably other, like, gay black people at the time. Um, and I think that still carries over today in movements, like, 
because in black communities like there's it's just so like very deeply rooted like the idea like when you just said it when like he was told that he had to be less gay in order to be associated with the movement because the very idea of him being gay would somehow like hinder the movement's credibility or like validity and that's because even at this time when black people were definitely not like receiving human rights like the idea of being gay like strips you of that humanity even more in the eyes of the political and it's disturbing and i think the fact that like we still collectively like there's still a lot of unchecked internalized homophobia and transphobia in black communities like just period full stop (laughs) because and it's like because of these reasons it's because we've let uh like he was allowed to be pushed out of the movement for something like because of his sexuality and so like when we're seeing that today uh people not championing as hard for um black trans women that have died um or have like experienced intense violence you know uh i remember this past summer ayana dior uh she was beaten by a large group of men for just like existing and that's like a really terrible sad fact that kind of just like permeates our entire society and so when i and it's really hard when you have these spaces that are like seemingly supposed to be pro-black or you know it's always like oh yeah we're fighting for for all black lives and then it's like mm, no but when we're talking about the intersection of racism and homophobia it's crickets talk about it right so and i saw a post I follow this um, account on Instagram called Melanin Queens Only, and this past summer they posted a screenshot, and it was like, um, but do black gay lives matter? And then everyone in the comments was like, of course they do, and we're fighting for everyone. But even just like the tonality, it was like, why does their sexuality matter? But it was like, no, we have to confront like the intersection of these two things and like how being... Um, black and LGBTQ like adds a layer of this oppression that like we're not really um, confronting and so it's like if you're just advocating for like straight black people then you're definitely not advocating for everyone you know right 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 like that's just that's just that's just it you know it's like when when we say black lives matter you you have to mean all black lives you know like you just have to or else like you don't actually mean that and like at the time like he was sent to like a psychiatrist to talk about being gay you know um we were just talking about like conversion therapy earlier today and like the psychiatrist's job he said was to like tell him to not throw being gay in other people's faces when it's like he wasn't doing that he was just going out and like hanging out with people and going on dates and like the things that like people who want to have love in their lives do like this man ended up being like really lonely for most of his life and like only having like activism as his only companion because like there wasn't he wasn't allowed to do other things you know like this is a person who like cares so much about the movement that he put his own personal happiness aside 
in order to fight for liberation for everyone else, especially even the people who were never going to get fight for liberation for him, or at least that aspect of him, and who, who were going to honestly treat him like, you know, someone's forgotten stepchild. Like, that's really what this was. It And it hurts my heart because, like, this man was so fundamental to everything that we have and he's been erased from his own legacy that he created which we're going to get into more in this next part about him because this is when um dr martin luther king jr comes into his life right um and so in 1956 rustin went to montgomery alabama and he advised mlk on nonviolent strategies of resistance during the montgomery bus uh bus boycott um, and so here's the thing about this is that like MLK learned nonviolence from him, right? Like, I think this is something that's super duper important that we emphasize, right? Because like we, when we think of MLK, we think of him as being a proponent of the teachings of Gandhi. And we think that about that, like being a thing that he learned independently of anyone else. And it's like, no, 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 no. Like when, when Bayard Rustin first met MLK and he came to his house, they were like, men with guns outside of his home and then rustin was like i don't think this is appropriate i think if you're going to be dedicated to nonviolence in your life you have to be not dedicate nonviolence in all aspects of your life and that means not having armed guards outside your home that means like you know really cutting down on the amount of like violence we are willing to allow to happen because he's like if there are guns here like that is what we are asking for that is showing that we were asking for violence to to come here and that we are prepared for it you know and so like i want to emphasize that like the reason why we have this image this part of the image of mlk is because of bayard rustin who studied under the people who learned from gandhi um and so like they had like a very good relationship they would work together for many many years after this um they like organized the southern christian leadership conference you know he helped him organize this montgomery bus boycott because it just was not coming together in the way it was supposed to come together until rustin got involved because rustin had many years of active of like street activism work under his belt in a way that mlk did not have at the time in the same way you know um and also like rustin had the connections and the people to be able to let a lot of these things happen um and so there's a quote that i want to read from when they were doing the boycott in a quote from rustin's montgomery diary uh he says as i watched the people walk away i had a feeling that no force on earth can stop this movement it has all the elements to touch the hearts of men and i think that that like strikes me somewhere so deep um knowing that this is how he felt being on like ground zero of this movement um and so like obviously dr king recognized the advantages of rust's knowledge contacts and organizational abilities and so he invited him to serve as his advisor now this man had rustin doing a little bit of everything um he assumed a variety of roles including proofreader ghostwriter philosophy teacher and non-violent strategist this man baird rustin is a one-stop shop of a man because he could do so many things there was so much knowledge and worth 
in this person not only in the things that he could do for other people but in the things that he knew and could impart upon other people and I think that's what makes him such like a great individual but also really great at this job that he decided to do which is like black activism and dedicating himself to black liberation like he is a man who very much understands how to get people involved into something and something that's going to have greater outreaches than himself um and so we're going to come up to another very sad part of bayard rustin's legacy so um activist a philip rudolph was getting older and so um rustin kind of became his energy he became this man's hands and legs of the movement um as like they were working together to just get things done and he was going places and he was talking he was talking to people and he was getting them riled up for you know all of these like marches that were going to happen all these big points in our history of the civil rights movement um here in the u.s and so Another low point in Rustin's career happens when he was essentially betrayed by another black leader. Um, so Representative Adam Clayton Powell uh, Jr. of New York was really angry that Rustin and King were planning a march outside the Democratic National Convention in L.A. And so they were planning this march because they wanted the Democratic Party to have a more aggressive stance on black liberation. They didn't think that the Democratic Party was doing nearly enough to help black people. And so they were like, we need to do something to show them the force of our numbers and to show them that, like, there are people who will back these decisions if they make more aggressive stances. Right. Um, and so the, the Democratic National Convention saw this as an insult um, onto the work that they were doing. And so Clayton warned King that if he did not drop Rustin from his campaigns and from his marches and from the public eye um, that he would tell the press that King and Rustin were in a relationship with each other. And this was a deeply malicious act. Like this was this representative blatantly like blackmailing um, Dr. King and the other activists into excluding someone who frankly his work is the reason probably what one of the big reasons why, or why that representative is even able to hold office I'm like let's let, let's put that out there right there um and so like and like this is this representative is specifically targeting rustin in this way you know because also they're releasing um messages at the time talking about there being sexual perversion in the civil rights movement and this and what they mean by that was rustin very specifically you know like this was an attack on him as an individual and not on the movement at all and i think it's really like i think it's really fucked up that this person was willing to undermine a movement that would mean liberation for thousands upon thousands of people in the name of his own like pride and overall hubris about being insulted in a, by this march and so um king was horrified at the notion of being thought of as being gay and so he called off the march on the convention and he put a lot of distance between him and rustin who 
ended up leaving once again leaving organization because of sexuality he ended up that he created or that was a fundamental part of he ended up leaving the southern christian leadership conference which was then led by king and again the southern christian leadership conference is a big part of dr king's legacy and we do not think about Bayard Rustin as being one of the creators of it. We do not think about it. Like I have heard so much about the Southern Christian Leadership Conference and in any of those stories, I have never heard Rustin's name mentioned. And this is another way that like we have separated this man from the legacy that he is like put his whole life and body into. Um, in the documentary that I keep mentioning, um, Brother Outsider, a lot of those close to him say that what really hurt more than being betrayed by this representative um was the reaction of randolph and king to this news that they this felt deeply personal to him and that it like he just was not the same as far as like working with them went because like this was just a really low blow in the way that like he had helped them do so much and it stood for them and for so many years and they just forsook him when like I would like you know I and I think a lot of other people think that um they should have st- they should have stood they should have stood by their dude you know who was doing what who was doing so much work for him um which brings us to what I think is one of the biggest oversights of history um 1963 with the March on Washington for Jobs and Freedom. So let's talk about this. Um, this was, this is the, what I think of in the Bay Russian story as being one of, it, ha, it, it is one of his largest accomplishments, I think. Like the March on Washington was not only like a march for jobs and freedom, but it was a symbolic moment of what the civil rights movement stood for. This was like the crux onto which every other part of the movement had been leading up to, you know, like these, this was civilians marching onto like a government building peacefully to demand liberation for themselves. Like this was a huge, huge huge deal and which is why i think it is even more egregious that rustin has been ousted from the narrative around the march around the march on washington so let's 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 like get into it so um there were concerns amongst other civil rights leaders about rustin being appointed as the um director of the march because they did not want um any bad press about the march they thought that there was already too many bad presses too, too much too much bad press around already because again is a bunch of african americans marching on to um the national mall and a lot of activists at the time felt that the event was too important to risk rustin on and so he was moved from being um his higher position um in the in the march to being deputy director um, under Randolph, who took over his spot. Um, and so in less than two months, Rustin guided the organization of an event that would bring over 200,000 participants to the nation's capital. Now, let me make something very clear once again, that the most quintessential moment of the civil rights movement happened because of a gay black 
Quaker man. You know, let, 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 let me say that. Let, let me say it again. The most quintessential moment, the most quintessential moment of the civil rights movement happened because of a gay black Quaker. I want to I want to put it in your earlobes because that is what that is. That's, 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 that's the truth. That's the whole truth. Point blank, period. Like we have what we have so much of it because of a queer person that is what it is um and i want to make that clear because when we talk about his legacy we often want to talk about him without talking about his queerness when i was doing the research for this it like listen there were i think i had to search specifically for like Bayard rustin gay to really get enough like information about him being queer like when I tell you the girls don't want you to know that, the girls don't want you to know that. Like they, like, I think this was such a huge part of who he was as a person to the point that like people in his own time tried to like overlook it and erase it. And we continue to do so. And I'm not going to let anyone forget that part of his life. I think, I think that part of his life has been in the dark long enough. And if we're going to think of Bear Rustin, we're going to remember that this was a gay man who gave us the rights that we have today. Um, and so like in the documentary, I think it like really humanizes him because you can see him like standing uh, next to the speakers um, of uh, of that day. And he's like smiling. And when they sing songs, he's like singing along and he's smoking a cigarette. He looks so cool and handsome and like, he is he's in the background so very much of these shots of these very like important impactful moments and that is really that's why we call him our brother outsider or like you know our like lone prophet is because like this man is like the the eyes the ears the body of the civil rights movement and he was really what allowed a lot of it to make it move and to make it and to give it life and he's hidden in the shadows for so much of that and it made me cry like I just I just I just I was so deeply emotional about understanding that this man who has I think personally given me so much as I think of myself as an activist as I think of myself in my own like place in the world and I I get really emotional about not knowing his name until like my adulthood so like Yasmin what are your thoughts on this huge part of his legacy in the March well, of Washington? Well I think your emotions are like completely justified right and I wish that I could like articulate it better it seems like we can't find the words to like um really explain like this phenomena of not being able to know who this person was and but it's like you know, we're still young, and so, you know, you shouldn't beat yourself up, and no, the point of the series is not to, you know, criminalize people for not knowing uh, these people's names. It's more about, like, bringing that information to the public the best that we can, right? So you shouldn't feel bad or sad about not knowing um, Rustin, right? But it's like, now what do we do with this information moving forward? We, what can we do? 
try to redefine activism, try to make it more accessible, talk about him, you know, when it's Black History Month every day, just because, talk about him, you know? Um, And then it's like, especially because activism is a hot-button issue right now, and I'm not sure people even really know what it means. Like, activism is not tweeting something or, like, posting a picture on the Finsta. It is highly calculated it is organized you have to strategize and even more so during this period of time right like these like we were saying like these events weren't just like oh do you just want to go hang out in the street like no like they were very calculated and like everybody had to be on the same page about the desired outcome and not just anybody could do that you know to really do that and, like, to reach your goals, you have to have an understanding of the social zeitgeist at the time. You have to understand, like, the political repercussions. Um, knowledge, it just feels so cold to not attribute these successes to him, you know? Right, right. And it's It like... feels very... Sorry, I didn't mean to cut you off. It feels very cold... And especially because we're living in a time where black people are responsible for so many things that we're not given credit for, it feels even worse when, in this situation, other black people are trying to take these accomplishments, at least, like, separate them from his name. Right, right. And, like, I don't know, it hurts, I don't know, it hurts, like, in a, in a, in a, in a, like, a a morning kind of way for me, you know, like I, I grew up and there, we talked about this in the past episode, but there's like, there's a lot of homophobia in like black communities and in black spaces. There's a lot of, there's a lot of people who discount black queer people and who attempt to steal the black part of us because of like queerness, you know, and like understanding that a queer person has had like such a deep impact on like American history overall and like black history specifically is like so deeply powerful. Like it reminds, I think queer people or queer black, black, queer black people specifically that like you're still a part of this narrative of like black liberation and queerness does not have to, and does not like take that away from you. Like, your body and your like life and the things that you have to share with other people are just as valuable as that of that as any like straight or like or cishet black person you know because like frankly like what that what that is for me is that like queer black people helped create the movement and so like yes queer black people even in today's uh new civil rights movement have just as much a place like a seat at that table as like any other black person does and I think like we sometimes we try to be like why does queerness matter like why is that important like like you said earlier Yasmin and like it is important because like being black and queer is its own very specific experience like when he was arrested like yes it was because he was like gay but also like the fact that this man was doing civil rights activism like, and how that he was being watched so heavily by the government and by authorities, like, 
those are all big factors in that arrest. Like, you know, like those are all like huge reasons why this man was in like a maximum security prison for um, a crime that did not for like, you know, for that he was in a high security prison for like something that did not fit the charges that he was charged with, you know, like it has affected all of his life. And we cannot divorce these two things from each other as a result. Um, so that's what really, you know, it fills my heart with like a lot of like, you know, like drive and a lot of like um, appreciation for him um, in that way. Just because it's like, you know, he's one of these, he's one of these ancestors that has like laid the roots for the way that I think about myself and the way that I, and the place that I have in the world. Um and so moving on, of course, like the march on Washington for jobs and freedom was super successful. Um, and, you know, he didn't super get to see like a lot of the fruits of his many, many years of labor and his love of freedom. Um, but despite all of that, he is on a cover of Life magazine uh, from the time, you know, um, and people at the march did like recognize that he had an element of um in its organization you know so he did get to receive some fame from being a part of this movement and that came with its own like you know dangers of course he was on like nixon's list of enemies against the state um at one point and then you know he learned about that said he was proud to be on nixon's list of enemies against the state because he's like i just think that if like you know, it kind of sucks even more so that Nixon has all these thoughts on poor people um, that are a little unsavory. Um, and so he he started doing he was doing activism until like, you know, for much longer after this. Um, so after um, the March in Washington, of course, um, and all that happened with that, um, his thoughts on liberation became a little bit more mainstream um, as he started to move towards like black people being involved in like politics. Um, and so he said that unfortunately, if black people are going to be involved in the politics, that means you're going to have to compromise on some things. And so some people in like leftist movements, some people in um, liberation movement at the time were like, I don't want to compromise on my rights. And like that is a completely valid like stance to have you know like he was just trying to do different things because like with fame and with the power that he suddenly had as a result of you know him reaching like the zenith of his work like that just meant that like he was making different moves in a way that like maybe he would in moves that he probably would not have been making earlier in his career um and you know so again he wanted to do activism also for um, AIDS activism. So in the 1980s, he began to like shift his focuses towards advocating for gay rights. Um, and a lot of this happened because like a lot of the people who he was working with during civil rights movements had passed on, you know. And I think a lot of that um, contributed to a lot of like the loneliness people talk about him experiencing later in his life and then once again it's kind of like well he's not allowed really wasn't he wasn't allowed for a large part of his life to have companionship in like romantic companionship and so of course like 
you know, he's going to turn back to the only companion he's ever had, which is like fighting people's fundamental human rights. Um, and so he worked to bring the AIDS crisis to the attention of the NAACP, once predicting, uh, this is a quote from him, he said, 25, 30 years ago, the barometer of human rights in the United States were black people. That is no longer true. The barometer for judging the character of people in regard to human rights is now those who consider themselves gay, homosexual, lesbian. And, um, you know, I also cried reading that quote um, because, you know, um, a lot of his lead activism talks about seeing the AIDS crisis as, as, a, as, as a black issue. Also, in the same way that he wanted to see uh, seeing labor rights as a... Um, as a like civil rights issue for black people also like he part of uh his legacy has been also to like realize that all these movements for human rights are they have the same goals fundamentally is that they all are striving for people to be treated like full people and so um i think in his work he clearly firmly believes that like all people are one in the same and that like rights for some of us means rights for all of us, which is a really, um, which is another like, you know, a really popular statement um, in uh, queer activism at the moment. Um, and so Bayard Rustin died on August 24th, 1987 at the age of 75, just four days shy of March's 20 of the, um, hold on, I'll read that line. Bayard Rustin died on August 24th, 1987 at 75, just four days shy of the March on Washington's 24th anniversary. The Presidential Medal of Freedom, the nation's highest civilian honor, was awarded to Rustin in a White House ceremony in 2013. He was also posthumously pardoned by Governor Gavin Newsom of California in February of 2020. His estate is managed by his longtime partner and now archivist, Walter Nagel. Um, and so that's the end of, um, of the life of Bayard Rustin and of the gifts that he has given us in his life. Um, Yasmin, what do you think we should be taking away from his story today? We should be taking away that activism that we know it, like, activism, the way that we know it today, as far as, like, Black Lives Matter or other um, radical liberation movements, they would not exist without queer Black people, period. Like, whether you know their names or not, that's just a fact, because I'm sure that um, Rustin is not the only uh, person or un unsung hero of history, if I can put it that way. And so I think we just have to think about that moving forward. It's like, if these people's legacies have shaped, shaped activism the way that we know it today, then we should be putting in the work to keep advocating for Black LGBTQ lives. And if you think that as like a Black straight person, that's not your job or somehow that is like diluting the point or a lot of times I hear like people saying like, well, oh, well, that's like a whole separate thing. Like if you view those two things as separate, then you are not as woke as you think you are, period. And yeah, like the movement requires all of us. 
Like, you're just not. And I'm being really intense about it because, like, well, thank you, Aaliyah, for taking us on this in-depth journey of this hero's life, you know? And that's another takeaway. It's like, we weren't taught this, right? But at some point, it's like, we have to do the work to do the education, and we're all capable of doing that. So that's my second takeaway of, like, yeah, you might not know these people now, but it's Black History Month, so you got so many more days, you got 20-something days left to keep doing the work. So... Right. Uh, He said in his early career, we need in every community a group of angelic troublemakers. And I think that that's really important to the way that we think about our activism going forward and the way that we think about like our lives going forward. And I just he was just so, so important, both like to me right now after having done all this research about him, but also just to like the lives that we have. And it's just reprehensible for him to be erased from the movement that he built, the movement that he put his body in front of, the movement that he gave so many years of his life for, that he forsook a lot of like personal um, like loves and companionships for. Um, and I think it's just really important to celebrate his legacy equal to that because we didn't really get to give him his flowers and his time. But now with like our show today, and in going every day forward, um, we get to we get to do that, and especially in like Blood Black Lives Matter movement, we get to like now focus our legacy on Black queer lives in like in his honor and in the honor of every other queer person who has given us our rights. Um, we get to like make sure that we are never making the mistake of forsaking certain Black people for palatability of uh for our own palatability of of a movement like those aren't things that we have to do or should be doing anymore um and i just think it's easy on you know again i think it's easy as a white queer person to feel the need to only associate yourself with uh queer liberation or with black liberation separately but i want any black queer person who listens to the show to understand that you don't have to do that because you have always been both black and queer and you will always be both black and queer and that these movements that have been built on our bodies and our lives like they deserve and they should be together you know like black liberation is queer liberation and vice versa so i want anyone listening to remember that um and my heart is very full thinking about all of that and he's always going and barrett rustin is always going to be really important to me for that reason. Um, but that's a wrap for our episode this week. Yasmin, where can our listeners find you? Ooh, and what a great episode it was. Uh, I'm at Yasmin underscore SA on Instagram. Aliyah, where can our listeners find you? I am at It's Aaliyah Dorsey on Twitter and Instagram. As always, please follow at Black Girl Tea Party on Instagram and search Black Girl Tea Party on Facebook and Black Girl Tea Time on Twitter to stay up to date with our episodes and with updates from us. Also, please subscribe, rate and review us on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to our show. You can also send us an email at blackgirlteaparty at gmail.com. 
uh send us questions ask for advice tell us how much you love the show tell us about black people who you think are awesome and great maybe you could teach us about someone who we haven't heard of yet um and we would just love to hear from you overall um um and in the words of bayard rustin we are all one and if we don't know it we will learn it the hard way thank you for joining us this week Stay tuned because for the rest of the month, we'll be doing this Black History Month series. All of our sources are listed in the caption. So if you take anything from today, please love each other and love yourselves. And we'll see you next week. There is a bomb in Gilead to make the wounds at See?